0: Hello, Dr. Ingram. Thank you for having me on your show. We'll get right into the questions. Question. What is poetry? I think of poetry as the ability to bring the unconscious, the subconscious, and the conscious either to a place where they are one entity or to shine light into all three. There's a second verse of uh, one of my poems, Jewel Lake, and it's from my new book, Glyphs. And this defines poetry as well as I can. After all the time spent looking for myself in everyone but myself, I'm still asking, what corsets me? What laces so tight up my back that just breathing is a well-thought-out task, end. Question, why is poetry important? Clarissa Pinkola Estes says, and I embrace the truth of this, she says, quote, there's a reason poets often say poetry saved my life. For often, the blank page is the only one listening to the soul's suffering, the only one registering the story completely, the only one receiving all softly and without condemnation, End quote. I love that part about registering the story completely. I think poems and poets strive to do that. Why it's important is another thing entirely. Important is a very subjective word, right? Uh, some poems you know from the first read or first draft that they are important to the poet or to the reader. Other poems take on importance as you read and reread and rewrite them. And poetry is sometimes a prophet or a priestess or a seer, set in the times poems are written and are read. Its importance is embedded very personally in the soul of the reader. When poems move a reader to laughter or tears or even madness, those words, those feelings become the property of the reader. Only she or he can decide what is important. Question, what was an earlier experience where you learned that poetic language had power? As a young writer, Jack Kerouac's work had a profound influence on my writing life. When first I encountered On the Road, I was quite literally melded into his journeys, his philosophies, his experiences. Reading all his books made me feel like a part of Kerouac himself and his feelings and what he was focusing on. As an adult, I was given the treasure of friendship with a wonderful, beautiful poet named Larry Kramer. He has since passed, but he was my teacher, mentor, brother, friend, critic, and editor for my work. Uh, His book, by the way, is Brilliant Windows, and you really must find it and read it. Larry taught me to write from the places inside myself I did not wish to go, that the readers will follow me if they sense authenticity. Through Larry... I learned that if you write from that very authentic place, you can take others with you on your poetic adventures. You can enchant them into coming along with you. And I work hard at doing that. I use language as a tool for showing readers how sadly and terrifyingly and sometimes joyfully we are alike, in the large ways and the small Hang nails suck for everybody. A stain on a new shirt sucks. Chocolates taste great. Our children make us cry. Everyone hates hay fever and too much traffic and Mondays. All those things are the same for all of us. And the right language has the power to show this. Question. What are some of the predominant themes of your work? I write about circumstances, how people feel about circumstances, how we all continue day after day to feel about those angel-headed, demon-infested circumstances. I write about how it is perpetual, the way we wait out the night, venturing out into its dark eye, holding the belt loop of the poor sucker in front of us, hoping they might know the way to go. I write about Los Angeles, who is my woman, my mother, my sister, my lover, my friend, my monster. I am L.A.'s slave and her partner and her conqueror and her patient and her most fervent fan. Los Angeles has been my comfort and sometimes a dangerous companion. I love this city as much as I've loved any person. And so I write inside her and about her. I have a poem that reflects that, and I'll read it. It's called Sadie Sings to Her City. Impenetrable Los Angeles, you are California's bitch, so to speak. Berkeley's black sheep brother, San Diego's alcoholic uncle. San Francisco's drug-addicted niece. <laughs> it doesn't bother me, love. You have been my mother and the aunt who formed me and the long-haired lover who sexed me out of my clothes and out of my mind. A monstrous clarity that tickles my nerve endings embraces all those moments even now. The social contract that binds more civilized cities has very few signatures from Angelinos. Somehow, that particular contract was placed on a butcher block as soon as early citizens began to build the city. The only contract here is the one between the demons and angels who fight their game wars daily. Socialization is on a need-to-know, one-on-one basis. Blessed City, which helped me stop fawning over failed traditions, you gave me victory over expectations, laughter over lost opportunities, choices to wear sedariums or skinny pants. Every other place I have been has been a trailer, a preview of the main attraction. Like me, you are dissonant to the end, an unresolved chord looking for beauty and beginnings finding them in the big finish of heavy traffic and sirens and your own angry heart, which never stops pounding. End. Question. How does a poem begin with an idea, form, or image for you? Well, very often it's a conversation I've overheard, Something I've seen while I was on the bus, or a line from something I'm reading. I've gotten ideas from photos, and paintings, and songs, and sidewalks, and windows, and weather. Um, I actually see all of my surroundings as gifts given to me to write poems. Question. All great writers, performers have great ideas for writing influences. Who are some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes? I mentioned Kerouac earlier in Larry Kramer. Others are Amy Lowell, Robert Lowell, Frank O'Hara, James Agee, Stephen Dunn, David Cluel. All past. Currently, I'm loving the work of Mark Smith Soto, Beth Copeland, and John Balaman. What makes them great is their consummate simplicity, accessibility, their way of structuring an idea or a vision so that it becomes clear in the reader's minds. Their work continuously reaches for a mastery of craft and communication. Their words, their word choices, are so carefully thought out and so brilliantly placed, and they take creative risks, which I find delicious. Question. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature, once it is out, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your view on editing poems? I think most poems can use an edit here and there. Certainly, my poems can. And I think it's important to keep the spirit of the first draft in mind. The. What did I want to say in this poem? What prompted me to write about this? How clear or how hidden are my purposes? It's very important to me to be true to the original vision of the poem. Meticulous editing is essential to some poets, less so to others, and neither choice is wrong. Just as long as you stay in the purpose of the poem. I'll read to you a poem that I'm working on, I think this poem is calling out for more evocative language, so I'm in the middle of revising it. It was written after a dream that I thought should have left me happy, but didn't. Uh, And the poem is called The Effect of Contrasted Light and Shadow. Some evenings barely hint at a coming night. They're just echoes of the day. You sit on the stoop of your apartment building and wait for breezes and ballads and songs to play in the creeping dark. Early evenings usually bring sad songs. However, if you're lucky, when the wind does show up, it's a saline breath, and you are taken to another evening in your mind. You, you on the sand at Morro Bay, a true love next to you. The wind comes over the water and tangles your hair with his. A kiss leaves a speck of sand on your mouth. The salted gusts bring tears to your eyes, brings longing to the rest of you. That memory will do the trick. You've been lucky. Up in your room, the dark approaches, holds the dream in its hand until you sleep. End. question, what is the role of a poet in modern day society? I think it's to give the readers another way of seeing slash hearing the truths and the illusions and the dreams of this world in an accessible way. Uh, A way to take them outside or inside themselves in the placement and the feeling of words. Our role as poets, I think, is to teach, or tickle, or transform, or to point out the twists and turns in the path, or show an alternative path. We are the secret ingredient in the mysterious recipes of the gods. Question. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Yeah, I do. Um, I was an only child, very solitary, and very shy. And I learned to read when I was about three years old. One of the first books I remember reading was Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses. I memorized those poems. I love them to this day. And I've been reading and writing poems ever since then. So, yeah, I think poetry and I were meant to be a couple. question what surprises you most about being a poet that i continue to be one i've been writing for about 65 years and during that time i've had the same joys and sorrows and fears that everyone else has, has had in one way or another but throughout all these years and circumstances i've kept on writing and trying to grow my poems to keep them authentic and capable of surprise. Sometimes the world seemed very dark to me, and I reflected that in my work. Sometimes love, spiritual, mental, physical, guided my poems. Sometimes I felt so alone that the pen and paper were all I could see or relate to. There have been times, and still are times, that I feel unable to express anything on paper, but I write anyway, even if my page just ends up saying, damn, 150 times. Question. Writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to message their audience while others write because staying silent is not an option. Why do you write? Because staying silent is not an option is a great way to put it. Poems hammer at the inside of me until I let them out. They won't let me alone. Now I have a poem here. It's also from my new book, Glyphs, that came from a dream I had that I could not get out of my head. And at the time, it seemed that no matter what I was trying to work on, this poem banged and shouted around in my head until I had to write it down. I'll read it to you. It's called Secrets. What the stiff breeze and ocean have to say remains a mystery. Who are we to try to understand the splinters of a broken boat that strays onto the beach? Or... Suppose the sleeve from a small jacket ends up on some jutting rocks. What are we to glean from that? Then there are the grasses that nearly reach the waterline but never quite get there. The necklace chain. The watch face. The scrap of lingerie in those grasses must be some kind of prophecy or an omen, but what kind? A few nights ago, I dreamed of Polly's Island. The water was so warm there in the Atlantic Sea that it unsettled me, and I wondered if I was actually asleep. Then a house nearby caught on the fire, and the ocean, understanding the urgency, rose up, put the fire out. The silence was profound, and the only sound to be heard in the dreamscape was a far-off bell on a boy, tinging out the riddles only the seaweed understands. End. Question. Has a poem that you have written ever humbled or frightened you? What was it? When did it happen? And what did you do afterward? There is a poem, uh, in six short parts from my book, Learning by Wrote, which came out in 2012. The poems came from a book of photographs. Uh, The title was Time Eyewitness Collector's Edition, 150 Years of Photojournalism. This book affected me profoundly. And as I wrote the following poem, I cried like a baby. My responses to those photographs was so strong. It frightened me. The poem, every time I read it, felt like a warning. When I have read the poem to an audience, I've seen some folks cry, so I know they are equally moved. And I hope that's because you can see the photos from these words. 1. Mill Fire in Oswego, New York, 1835. George N. Barnard Photography. In the daguerreotype, the mill is hell reaching to heaven. The sins of war shrieking to the citizenry in a kind of technicolor. A boat going by has returned from, oh, who knows, a delivery of hay bales or cotton. The rowers row, keep their backs to the fire. They are not thinking of Sherman and his damned march. They are tired. Thinking home, bread, stew. 2. Burning Public Records in Petrograd, 1917, Photographer Unknown. I count 23. Their czar is nowhere to be seen, but these 23 in fur hats and long black coats may just as well be having a fish fry as a political cover-up. The public records are smoke rising into frozen air. The state employees wish it were warmer. In their offices, in the public buildings, are hot plates with kettles of tea waiting for them. In the background, the curious look on. They keep their distance. Fish fry or paper burning its all the same to the war-torn. Three- Mother and Child at Hiroshima, 1945, Alfred Eisenstadt, Photographer This is not the miraculous mother and her infant of Prague, oh my no, this is the Madonna and child of nothing left. Say your prayer beads if you wish, but there is only hunger where their hearts used to be. 4. Coney Island, 1946, Henri Cartier Bresson, photographer. It could easily be the opening of a porno film, but this is Time Magazine, 1946. The Sand, The Blanket on the Sand, The Girl on the Blanket on the Sand, The Two Men with the Girl on the Blanket on the Sand. Her mouth is open and smiling. The guy in the sailor cap holds down her wrists and leans over her. The other man watches his back to the camera. The sailor has sand on his thigh and on his swim trunks. My mother had that girl's bathing suit, but not that girl's open mouthed laugh. What a pity. Five. The World's First Hydrogen Fusion Blast at Eniwetok, We Talk, 1952. It's a U.S. Air Force photograph. A volcano on a stem spits out flying saucers. Or are those steps to Dante's fourth level of hell, limbo? The red-black clouds are lava. The sky tells us that the devil has the whole world in his hands. Six, an old woman in an Indiana poorhouse, 1952, Wallace Kirkland, photographer. If only the light through that tall painted window was not so bright. If only that doll with its head on her pillow was not her only possession, as the caption tells us. If only the mattress was not so thin, the woman's hair so unkempt, her back so hopelessly curved. If only she did not grasp so tightly the iron bed frame. Her face alone is worth a revolution. End. Question. What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? My speaking voice rarely indicates what I'm actually thinking or feeling. My speaking voice is polite. It's cheery. It follows the rules. It works and plays well with others. It covers up things, colors them, entertains. Remains positive. My speaking voice is likely to resemble lovely colored Christmas wrapping paper. Talking with someone outside the poem is often cloaked in positive utterances to show rosy-cheeked health and a general all-rightness. My writing voice exposes me. It speaks about my real thoughts and feelings and visions. It does not always follow the rules, nor is it always cheery. It plays tricks sometimes. It rarely shouts, but is often angry. It loses and regains hope within five lines of a poem. It delves into reality and desperation and confusion. My writing voice asks, who the hell am I, regularly? It strives to enchant and manipulate the reader, but of the two voices, it's the truest. Here's a poem that talks a little about that. It's from the book Blues for French Roast with Chicory, a book that came out in 2020. The poem is called Wardrobe. The light is escaping the sky. I've rifled through my lingerie drawer more times than I can count, searching where is the I who cleaned the house, drove for errands, offered gourmet meals, made love like a young man's myth. The drawer doesn't hold a clue, nor does the mirror, nor does the puddle on the sidewalk out front, and I do check it frequently. So why do I continue to look for her, that I who is misplaced? I want to give her something, something she can keep with her now that she is in a safe place, a song, a sweet gesture, a bracelet, a birthday cake. End. Question. When people hear your work, they usually want more. What's next for you as a poet? (laughs) Uh, I'm never sure if people want more or not. I like to think so. Right now, I'm working on promoting sales for my newest book, Glyphs, which came out in May of this year. By the way, promoting sales means wishing, hoping, praying that folks will buy and read the book. Then... I have a book coming out in late 2023 or early in 2024 from the beautiful Deerbrook editions. Um, What's next? Uh, As usual, I'll get up early, savor my coffee, read or listen to a book or a song, and then I'll say namaste to my pad and pen and to my computer. I'll work as long as it takes and then relax with my husband and cats and an adult beverage. After that, who knows what's next? Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. I think um, one of the best ways to end this question and to end our visit today um, is to read the last bit from Jack Kerouac's On the Road, I think it says to all of us what's ahead. Quote, So, in America, when the sun goes down and I sit on the old broken down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the West Coast, and all that road going, all the people dreaming in the immensity of it. And in Iowa, I know by now the children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight... The stars will be out and don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in, and nobody, nobody knows. What's going to happen to anybody? End. Dr. Ingram, it's been lovely being part of your journey here. Thanks for asking me, and thank you to those who listened. Bye.